guys. Good to see you today. We're in a series now called Doctrine. And a lot of people go, are you kidding me? That sounds terribly boring. It really is a word that just means teaching. What is it we believe? What is it we teach? What does the Bible say? And I think you're going to find this to be a little bit different in some ways because we're going to give you some tools that we call apologetic tools, that is, ways to defend your faith, ways to answer skeptics and critics of the gospel. And so we're also going to bring contemporary culture in and show you what is being said, what, is, what are people thinking in our world, because we are not isolationists who believe that we put our head in a barrel and don't know about culture, don't see it, experience it. We are missionaries to culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the more you know, the more you can respond, the more you can talk, the more you can defend, the more you can be a proponent for good, solid, biblical doctrine. I want to begin with, uh, with this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? It's a basic philosophical question. We all know there's something There's you and me and this world and this universe and these stars that exist. But why is there something rather than nothing? The scientist is concerned with where it came from and how it all works, but purpose is far from their really scope of study. But when we begin with this question and we say, why is there something rather than nothing, it forces us into God talk. And we need to think in terms of this person that we identify as God, not only God, but which God? Are there more than one gods? Is the God of the Bible the true God, which we believe he is, that he has revealed himself in the Bible, the word of the living God? And what does he have to say to us? As we think about other skeptics and what they've written, Bertrand Russell thought we are just an accidental collation of atoms. In other words, we're just atoms that lined up in exactly the right way and became human beings. It's really explaining the world apart from God himself. Again, it lacks the purpose and does not answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? God doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't need to. He simply proclaims who he is and what he has done. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. We are all been baffled by the third grader who asked the question, Where did God come from? It's impossible to answer. Don't even try. Change the subject. (laughs) Give them something. Because you will find yourself in a house of mirrors the size of the Empire State Building trying to answer that question. We could put it like this. God came from no place because there was no place before God created place. Does that help? How about God is eternal and did not have a beginning because there was no time until God spoke time into being? How does that do? Does that help? I actually tried that with a little boy that asked me the question, where did God come from? And I simply just told him what I told you. And he goes, 
oh yeah, that makes sense, and left. (laughs) So try it, it might work. I want to give you what have been some of the traditional arguments for the existence of God. I don't want to be deeply philosophical at this point, but I do want you to get a basic idea of what people think and how people try to explain the fact that there is a God. And I think you're going to find this to be a great framework as we then dive into the Word of God and begin to take apart what God has said and present it to you in a way that helps you to understand there is a very, very solid basis for believing in God. And I will say to you who do not know God, maybe you think you know God, but maybe you are clearly convinced you don't know Him and you're on this journey to find God, I will say that God is findable. In fact, God is seeking you out. God is looking for you. He is knocking on the door of your heart and wants to build a relationship with you that's real and vital and strong and powerful in all ways. The first argument is called the cosmological argument. And it really just says everything in the universe has a cause. Now, you can already see the fallacy in it because you say, well, then did what's the cause for God? Well, you find yourself again asking that question. Where did he come from? What's he like? Who is he? But if everything has a cause, I can look and say, well, you know, there's a tree here. This tree has a purpose. It has a cause, and it came from somewhere, and it, has, it directs me for shade, and it gives me fruit, and it does all these things. Another argument is the teleological argument, and it just says there is harmony in the world. There is something that points to a divine design. I don't walk out to a tree, I don't look into the sky and say, it just happened. It's kind of odd, but these things happen in our world. I say, why does it work together? Why is there just the right amount of oxygen in our world for us to breathe? Why is there enough fresh water, and why is it we can't drink salt water, and what is this all about? There is a harmony and a beauty and a symmetry in our world that points to a divine creator. And this word telos in the Greek is a word that points us back and says there is a purpose for why we are here. We reduce that down to where you and I live. There is a purpose for your life. You don't just exist to function through life and grow old and then die. There is a purpose that God wove into you, and you know it's there, even if you can't really put your finger on it, and if you haven't really discovered it and walked in it, you know that there must be some purpose for your life, and that is the teleological argument. Then there is a moral argument, and that is that all people have a sense of right and wrong. There's something in us. There's a moral compass in mankind. Now, man can sear his conscience. Man can can move away from his conscience. He can do what he wants to do. He can live a life of crime. He can live a life of evil. At the same time, he can encourage that which is good in him, and he can live a life of good. And he can find righteousness through Jesus Christ. But there is a moral law. One of the confusing things in our world today, and we see it in everything from the the local court to the Supreme Court to the, the opinion on the person on the street, is what is truth? Is there a moral absolute? And what we mean by that, is there a standard by which you can evaluate everything in the world and say that's right and that's wrong? We say that is the Word of God. 
The Bible is our absolute standard of truth. It determines right and wrong. If you ever have taken the time to read any of the transcripts from the Nuremberg trials for World War II, you realize that they almost let all those war criminals go free. It was so close to that turning point until there was an appeal by the attorney representing the nations, an American attorney who said he appealed to the standard of God and his word. That the word said there's something right, there's something wrong. And it was that that turned that into a conviction because everyone said that's right. It wouldn't work today. We're living in a world without a standard, without an absolute truth, without moral compass by which to live our lives. And so whatever works for you, whatever seems right, whatever is popular becomes truth. And we live that. We can point the finger and say, look who's doing what, but it's in our life as well. We justify certain things and certain behaviors and certain thoughts, and and the human side of us gets the best of us sometimes. But we're on a quest. We want to know what God has to say, and that's why we're in this series called Doctrine. Ansem wrote, Hundreds of years ago, this. Our faith, ours is a faith that seeks understanding. If your faith is not one that seeks understanding, you're missing out on the greatest joy of of really walking with God. That God says, seek me and you will find me. At the same time, he frustrates us because he says, my ways are not your ways and my ways are past finding out. But it is given to kings to search out a thing, the book of Proverbs says. God hides things so that we can find them. In finding them, we are responsible for what we find to do something with it. And when we find it, it's like silver and gold, the scripture says. Why why is doctrine important? Here's a few ideas that I jotted down. One is it will shape your spiritual life. When you start to understand what you believe and why you believe it, your spiritual life will have a shape and a form that makes sense. Instead of the response when people say, well, what do you believe? You go, well, I'm not really sure about that. That's never a fun place to be, is it? Or they say, I believe this. What do you believe? And you go, I really don't know. I've never even thought about that. Another thing it will do is increase your love for God. The more that you study God and study his word, you grow in deeper and deeper love with God because you realize that the length and the breadth of what he did on the cross and in the revelation of the word and of the creation of man and of the future plans he has for us, for you and for me. And you'll see this thing all come together in a harmony that is just absolutely amazing. The other thing you'll do as you study doctrine is you'll understand God's plan. Not just for your life, but God's plan for this planet and for all eternity. And that should be a relevant topic for all of us because all of us have a concern about tomorrow because we plan to get there. We plan to visit our future. Not just 
in the physical world of time and space, but we plan to visit our world in eternity, the new worlds that God has created. Well, let's talk a bit about the declaration of God. I love the way God just puts it out there where we can put our arms around it. Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says this, I am the Lord. What could be more clear than that? We could stop right there. But then you wouldn't feel like you got your money's worth. You'd say, that's a short sermon. But really, we could stop right there. I am the Lord. That is my name. That is my revelation to you. I am not your servant. I can be your friend but I am your Lord, and I'm in charge, and what I say goes. I know we're living in a day of doctrinal uncertainty and the placating of all kinds of people's ideas and thoughts and visions and dreams and wonders, but I want you to know God says, I am the Lord, and there's clarity there because it's written in God's Word. And then he says this, and my glory, I will not give to another. When I try to take some of the glory of God, he says, stop, I am the Lord. When I try to take credit for something, he says, stop, I am the Lord. And my glory, I will not give to another, nor will I give my praise to any graven image. You might create something and worship it. I don't do that. I don't authorize that. I don't sanction that. I'm God. What kind of an image are you going to create that's going to represent the eternal God? What would it look like? And anything you did that would be lesser than God, and if you worship it, if you adore it, if you give credit to it, you violate this basic principle of what he says here, I will not give my praise to another. I'm not sharing glory with you. I don't care who you are and how wonderful you are. I'm not going to do that. I'm always captured by headlines. I like to read and keep up with what's happening in our world, especially in the hip-hop world, because there's so much great information that can be relevant sermon titles and topics. And every once in a while, I find something I actually like, and I go, yeah, that's a pretty good song. Then I'll listen to a couple other songs the same artist does, and I go, whoa, that one's a little out there. But it gives me, it gives me, puts my hand on the cultural pulse of the world. You see, if we live our life in this isolationist kind of a little box of this little Christian subculture that only really understands how we work and how we function, we can't relate to anybody outside of our box. And they look at us and go, you're weird. And you know what? We are sometimes. But let's not be intentional about it, amen? Let's just let it be an accident. Kanye West wants to name his new album, I Am God. It's a pretty bold title. Pretty bold title for anybody. He got a little bit of flack, and so he said, well, really, it's not the album, it's the single. Then he backed off a couple of more days, and he said, well, it's really, I am a God. Well, that makes it so much better. 
he and Kim Kardashian, you know, are having a baby. Now they've decided maybe the name of their, their child to keep in the, in the Kardashian kind of venue there. They're going to name, start the name with a K, and they're looking at the name Christ, K-H-R-I-S-T. It's pretty brazen, pretty bold, but does it really matter if you don't know God anyway? You see, we Christians, we get upset about people who don't know God acting like they don't know God. How can you act like you don't know God? Well, I don't know God. That's not the issue. The issue is, how do you relate to them? How are you a missional, transforming person in their life if you have that connection on some level with somebody in your world that's out there? And maybe the greater question is, what kind of Christ are you presenting to people, a judgmental, narrow-minded God or a biblical God? That's the real question. You see, there's only one true God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. He is compassionate. He is faithful. He is just in all of his ways. The Bible says God dwells in an unapproachable light. He is the creator of the world. He is holy He is good, and every good gift comes from the Father above, from whom there is no variableness nor changing. He is a consistent God. He spoke to the prophet Malachi and said, I am the Lord and I change not. He is all-powerful, and he is worthy of mankind's worship and love. Tim Keller, who has been a cultural guide in New York City for many years, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, author, cultural spokesman in so many ways, wrote these words. Christianity that is not growing is not the more secularized, belief-thin versions predicted by the sociologist. Rather, it is a robust, supernaturalist kind of faith with belief in miracles scriptural authority, and personal conversion. Who wants religion? I don't. I love to shock people and say, I hate religion, and they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, I do, I hate religion. It's all about this conformity. Do it my way and, and live out your life under rules and guidance. And I'm going, oh, that gives me a pain I can't locate. But I love Jesus. I love his word. And that, to me, is more important. I'm not interested in going through the motion. You know, we are different. Our DNA in starting this church is is different, and we're not going to be like, and God forsake, I hope we're not like every other church. I hope we're different. hope we are who we are. Not there's anything wrong with other churches, but they need to be who they are so we can be who we are. Let me give you some of the evidence for God. William Wilberforce, you may recognize that name from uh, the slave trade and what he did to turn that around. But listen to what he said. Christianity has been successfully attacked and marginalized because those who profess belief were unable to defend the faith from attack, even though its attackers were deeply flawed. What do you say when someone attacks the faith? 
Most Christians just kind of cowl and get in a corner and say, well, gosh, you know, I don't even know how to answer that or, you know, well, I'm sorry about that or whatever. And I find that when you just confront somebody with a little bit of information, you don't have to have a lot because I know what you're thinking. You think, well, I don't know what you know. It doesn't matter. You just have to know a little bit because you you assume the guy who's giving you something knows a bunch. I just always assume they don't know what they're talking about and I'll just start talking and see where it goes. And every time it seems to work. And it's not like I had brilliant answers. I remember I was probably a Christian about a year. My next door neighbor got his PhD from Cambridge and he taught at Colorado University. He taught anthropology. His son was a uh, brain surgeon, literally. His daughter was an astrophysicist and his wife was a nurse. It was like, are you serious? They've studied more in 20 minutes than I studied in my lifetime. And I had become a Christian, and I said to him, I said, Grady, I became a Christian. He said, why the blank would you do that? And I began to just tell him my walk and my faith, and he said, you know, there's nothing to all this religion stuff. I don't know why you're so caught up with it. I said, you're like a cultural anthropologist, right? Sociologist, I mean, what do you, what do, you do? And he kind of explained it to me, and I, I said, let me ask you one question. Do you believe that there are peoples that evolved apart from somebody else. In other words, could there be multiple evolutions that took place? And it didn't just come from one guy. That's possible, he said. Do you believe there are tribes of people who've never encountered one another or any other tribe, as far as you know? They have no knowledge, yeah. I said, how come they all know about God? How did they get that? Where did they get that idea? They just say there's this cosmic... Sky hook. You know, whenever you get in trouble, God throws the hook down and goes, I'm your God today. Or was there something woven into who they are? Did God make them like that? Let me tell you the greatest news. The brain surgeon became a Christian, the astrophysicist became a Christian, and the nurse became a Christian, and Grady never did. Amazing. He had to live the rest of his life frustrated with his family. (laughs) Let's talk about general revelation. General revelation is just really looking around your world and going, you know what? I don't, I think this was created. This is too magnificent just to have happened. For me to, it takes a lot of faith for me to believe somehow that, that all the right things kind of came, to came together in the primeval sludge of this world, and, and next thing you know, I, 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 gosh, it was crazy, but my fins dropped off, I grew a couple of legs, my ancestors did, and I stepped out on the beach, and next thing I know, I went to school, and dry, I drive cars. That's a pretty big face step, if you ask me. That's evolution. Or how about this one? God spoke the world into existence. They're both faith presuppositions, aren't they? They both ask you to make a decision. Well, here's what General Revelation says in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. I can look into the heavens, I can see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and I can say God did a marvelous thing. And everybody believes that unless somebody tries to talk them out of it. Talk to a child. 
They have an instinctual kind of a knowledge there must be a God. And then let's go to Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Listen to what it says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes can be clearly seen. Now, an attribute of God would be like love. I can see the love of God in the natural world that I live in. I can see something of his mercy. I can see something of his power. Those are his invisible attributes, things that are true of God, not true of us. It says, being understood by the things which are made, that God was the maker, he was the creator. Even his eternal power and Godhead. You know what the Godhead is? It's the Trinity. I can look into my world, the natural world, and I can understand something of the Trinity. That seems hard to believe, doesn't it? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But God weaves this number three all through his creation. He said, let me just tell you a little bit about time. Time operates like this, past and present and future. And when you get ready to paint, I want you to know there's only three primary colors. You can take those colors, you can make any color you want. And when I created you, I created you body, soul, and spirit. I want you to understand something of that. I want you to understand something about the way I design things with height and width and depth. And if you want a confirmation, he said when I, in Genesis chapter 1, he said, I made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they were for signs and for seasons, for days and for months. I want you to see something of my design because they point to me. They're little glimpses of what I'm doing. And so it says, so they are without excuse. In other words, the man who's never read the Bible, the Bible says is without excuse because he can find God and a revelation of God in the natural world. Because there are people who will never see the Bible. How are they going to find God? A hungry heart always finds a loving God. Because although they knew him, you see that? Oh yeah, there's a God. I know about this God. It says they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. You know, one of the courses that unfortunately doesn't get taught too often in school is logic. Parents, can I just say this? The first thing to go in the life of your children is is their, their ability to work logical conclusions. Random thoughts, this is how I feel, instead of this doesn't make sense. Logic ought to be demand first level course for every student. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then there is special revelation. How about the Bible? That's God's special revelation. That's God revealing himself to us. But the ultimate revelation was Jesus Christ, the God-man. John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I remember one time I was uh, just early in my pastorate, and there was a knock on the door, and it was uh, the local team of Jehovah's Witnesses, and there was three ladies, and they said, we want to tell you about Jehovah. I said, great, come on in. And they sat down, and they started talking, and, and I said, um, they said something, well, you know, Jesus is a God. And I go, I thought he was the God. I didn't tell him I was a pastor. didn't tell him anything. And I really had only been a Christian four years. I started pastoring, senior pastor, when I was three years into the faith, 
So you know what, how much I knew. Like nothing, right? And so they said, well, you know, it says in the Greek. Well, I'd already had like 20 hours of Greek up to that point in college and seminary. I said, oh, really, do you read Greek? They said, oh, yes. And they, they have what's called an interlinear New Testament. And they put the English and they put the little Greek words below it. And so they tell them, see that word right there? That word means that word. They don't tell you the New World Translation has been modified. It doesn't reflect that. And I said, well, you know the little word A in front of God. A does not, indefinite articles don't appear in the Greek language. There are none. It's either absent or it's the word the. It's a definite article. And I said, for example, in John chapter 1, oh, yes, we know John. And I just, so I just quoted the Greek too. I just said, well, in our case, henologos, prostantheon, pentadia, and and I'd lost him. And I took him back to that passage I read earlier, uh, but I, I, I prefaced it with this question. I said, do you believe there's any way that God could be three persons? If he's all-powerful and almighty, could God be three persons but still be one being? Now, you see the dilemma? I created a dilemma. The dilemma is this. If I say yes, then I have a Trinitarian God. If I say no, then my God is not all-powerful. He's limited. They will always move in the direction of religion, not the Bible. No, there's no way God could do that. And I said, okay, let me read this passage. You believe it's true, Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another. Do you believe that's true? Oh, absolutely, I believe that. I took him over to Revelation 5. Here's Jesus sitting on the throne, the 12 and 24 elders. They fall down and they worship Jesus. I said, why is God letting that happen? He shouldn't do that. God should stop. Whoa, 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 angels. Everybody, wrong guy. God. I don't know who that guy is, but he just showed up. Or does that confirm the idea of the Trinity of God? It's one glimpse into it. How about John 1.14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That's a pretty powerful statement about God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then 14, and the Word became flesh. So this living Word of God became flesh and moved among us. Now that verse has a lot of power to it. Now there's an attempt to try to make the Bible easy to understand, and in the process of doing that with translations and paraphrases, what people end up getting is not much. For example, if you read the message, which is not a translation, it's just really kind of a mess, but it says this, it says, he moved into our neighborhood right down the street, he was one of us. Well, that doesn't tell you the word became flesh and dwelt among us and beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. It it misses the whole glory of who this person is, full of grace and full of truth. Let's go to the power of God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. You ever felt wise and you kind of thought, you know, I need to kind of glory in that. I need to kind of enjoy that a little bit. Let 
Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. Have you ever been frustrated with trying to know God, understand God? I want to tell you a story. When I was in second and third grade, my dad had a very high military clearance. And my dad moved to Germany, and I didn't see my dad for two years. And while I thought my dad was in one city, he was in another city. While I didn't know my dad was fluent in German until he was late in life, because whatever things he, were, he was doing for the government, not in Heidelberg, but in Berlin, in those days there was still a wall. I didn't see my dad for two years. I had a guy next door. He was a grandfather kind of guy, and he kind of became the surrogate father for a couple of years. But I was thinking about that the other day. I, I was just kind of pondering God a little bit and what that was like, trying to remember. And I have no conscious memory of my second and third grade year at all. I can't tell you the teacher. I can't tell you a friend. I can't tell you anything. I remember somewhere in that, that framework after that that my best friend who lived down the street, probably my only friend on that street we lived on, told me he was moving away in a couple of weeks. And I remember thinking, wow, I can't believe you're going to do that. And I blamed him, this third or fourth grader. How can you do that? You're my friend. And it was just childhood innocence, right? But it bothered me so much, you know, that, that I don't know that we really hung out too much in those last two weeks. I don't know whether it was too painful for me or whatever. And I remember one time in my life I was praying, and I, and I, you know when you have those honest prayers with God, the ones that count? You know, not, oh, Lord, thou who made the heavens, who lovest me, but the ones that go, God, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know who you are. Why have you left me? Why have you helped me? And I remember saying the words, these words, and they were so life-changing. I said, God, I feel like you have abandoned me. I feel like you've abandoned me. Where are you? I've done all the right things. I've said all the right things. I've tried to walk in faithfulness. I've tried to be faithful in all I could do. You've abandoned me, God. And all of a sudden, it was like a revelation from God came to me. God was like my father who abandoned me in second and third grade. And we project so much of our understanding of God on how we were raised and the, the traumas and the crisis we have in our life. It helped me to understand not only my childhood, but it helped me to understand my theology about God. That I'm prone to feel like God has abandoned me. Which as a believer, you, you say, well, how can that be? It just is because the human side of me is like that. And when I don't feel his presence or when I don't sense that God is in my court, I feel abandoned by God. But the reason it was so helpful was because it gave me the path back to understanding a little bit of how I operate. So scriptures like this, he says, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And I go, God, I don't really understand you sometimes. I have to live by faith. It's the only way I can do it. 
He said, just remember this, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, says the Lord. G.I. Packer said, the world has become a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as if it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and you can lose your soul. I heard a story, kind of a funny story, at least the first part of it. It's a story about a housekeeper who was busy about cleaning the house. And the owners had a beautiful little canary in a, in, a, in a gilded cage. And every time she came to clean, she would clean the cage. And she would take the little paper out at the bottom. And, and one day she was vacuuming. She thought, why don't I just vacuum out the bottom of the cage and save myself a lot of time? You almost know where this is going. It's not going to be good news for the canary, I can tell you already. And so while she's backing away and the little canary's up there, you know, tweeting away and singing away and just swinging on the little perch and everything else, the doorbell rang. And it startled her. And when it did, the the vacuum kind of went up in the air there and the canary went down the tube. She turned it off really quick. And to her relief, the bird, you know, appeared to be okay. And she put it back on the perch and and the little bird sat on the perch and where it sat, songless. It never sang again. It happens to people, you know. They appear to be okay, but they are affected deeply by trauma and stress, by the unkindness and the rudeness of other people. They lose their ability to sing. They appear to be okay. They sit on the perch and they swing back and forth. But gone are the pleasant songs. Gone is the creativity, the design by God. You may feel like a canary. You may feel like you've been put on a perch. I want you to draw near to God. I want you to come to Him today. If you know Him, I I want you to just find healing and ask Him to restore whatever's been lost in the process. A couple of life applications is this. Reach deep into the heart and mind of God today. There you're going to find the answers. Talking to people is helpful. Reading books, helpful. Seeking counsel from people who are skilled, helpful. But ultimately, it's going to be God the healer who's going to do what he does. The second thing is this. Unbelief is, a, is spiritual. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not that we can't believe in God. It's not that we can't make sense of God. It ultimately goes back to a spiritual issue that we have to address on our own heart that comes back always to faith. Can I believe God? Can I walk with God? Can I trust God through this? And whether you're the third grader who doesn't know how to, how to connect with God and that has, has formed your theology of, of the Father, feelings of abandonment or hurt or pain or difficulty, or whether the canary that seemed to be okay and you're just back on the perch, I want you to know that God is here for you. God loves you more than you could ever know. And you need to come to him, and I need to come to him, and we all need to find in him love, healing, and restoration. Stand with me as we pray, would you?
Father, as we think about God, there's so much to think about. There's so much God that we have to wonder about. And Father, we pray that you might just bring some healing. And I'm just going to ask the band just to play softly right now, just for the sake of time, so that we can, uh, we can give you time to kind of process. What's God doing in your heart right now? How's God speaking to you? So, Father, as we, uh, as we listen to you, I invite you, Holy Spirit of God, to speak to hearts right now. I invite you, Spirit of God, to just reach deep into the heart of every person here. Maybe it'll, it's just a time of revelation to find out why do I have that disconnect with God or why do I struggle with certain things. Maybe it's just trying to find out who you are in God's size. Let me just help you with that one. You are His special creation, loved and adored by Him. And right now, He's knocking on the door of your heart. To some, He's saying, let's restore and rebuild this relationship. To others, He's saying, let's establish a relationship of faith. So I'd ask you right now, just to call on the name of the Lord. Right where you stand, right where you sit, just call on the name of the Lord. God, speak to me. God, touch me. God, I'm back on the perch, but I'm not singing a song. Ask Him to put a song in your heart. A really joy in your walk. Ask Him to heal you. Ask Him to protect you from those who've done you harm. To restore back the joy of your salvation. And as you do today, we want you to to really just feel His love. Just invite His love right now and His presence to come over you, to empower you, and just worship Him in your heart right now. As we conclude this this morning, I just want to ask God's blessings on you. I'm going to ask this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in all that you do. May you sing the songs of God. May you dance the dance of God. May you love with the love of God. And by all means, may you know Him better and better every day. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great day.